0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, an award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the Hollywood editor of vanityfair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hi, Katie. And Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. This week, we're talking to Adam McKay, who is the director of The Big Short, as well as a fellow podcast host, as one half of the team behind Gimlet, Surprisingly Awesome. But today, we're going to focus on The Big Short, which was a late arrival in award season, but has popped up on many top ten lists and with a lot of major awards nominations from groups like the Golden Globes and the SAG Awards. Uh, so, yeah, we kind of want to know how that feels. From there, we'll be joined by our friend, fellow Vanity Fair staffer, and return guest, Krista Smith, who will join us to talk about Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, which stars last week's guest, Jennifer Jason Leigh, along with a very large other cast, and is a very elaborate Western, one of two of them that are opening over the holidays. And finally, we'll go big before we go home and predict who we think will win Best Actor.
2: Anyone can see that there's a real estate bubble. Actually, no one can see a bubble. That's what makes it a bubble. That's dumb,
3: Lawrence. It's always markers. Mortgage fraud, quintupled since 2000, and the average take-home pay is flat, but home prices are soaring. That means the homes are debt, not assets. So Mike Burry, a guy who gets his hair cut at supercuts and doesn't wear shoes, knows more than Alan Greenspan and Hank Paulson.
1: Yeah, Dr. Mike Burry, yes, he does. <laughs> And now we'll be joined by Adam McKay, the director of The Big Short, as well as films like Step Brothers and Anchorman, the two Anchorman films. We talked to him about making the transition from those comedies to a surprisingly angry but also very funny and very entertaining movie about the financial crisis and how that all really somehow works.
3: I wanted to start right off talking about this amazing movie. You know, it's an angry movie. Did you have an aha moment concerning the financial crisis where you just realized, hey, I'm really pissed off about this. I'm going to make a movie about it.
2: You know, I I think we all were affected by it. So, you know, before I read the book, I had a family member who lost their home. You know, I had friends who lost their jobs. I mean, it it was obviously affected the entire world, but... It wasn't really till I read the Michael Lewis book that it all kind of clicked in a way that was, you know, that I understood the structure of what had happened. Which I'd always kind of just in a vague way known that, okay, it was something with the housing bubble and the banks overextended and blah, blah, blah. But after I read that book and the fact that it was so tied to these amazing characters and and it felt so of the moment, that's when I really woke up on it. And... I think it's kind of impossible to tell the story without some anger. Uh, just the, the you know, inherent parts of it kind of add up to a degree of anger. Well, and one of the th- reasons why it
3: works as a movie is that it's, it's actually a success story in the most perverse way imaginable for these like handful of people, right? The whole world falling off its axis, they,
2: they won. Yeah, although, you know, it's a, it's a hollow victory for them. Uh, it, but it does start as a as a fun kind of... I was compare it to like a card-counting movie, like 21, where... They crack the casino. They figure out the entire system is flawed and no one else can see it. And there's a real rush to that, too. And especially, you know, we all know about the levels of fraud and stupidity from the big banks. It is so fun for the audience to see these people know the truth. And we root for the truth to win. But then, of course, by the end, they start realizing that, oh, the flaw is way bigger than they thought. And it's right. the entire world. And they all get terrified and meeting with the real people you know to this day they're still very angry still very terrified that's what i liked about it it had kind of that ambiguity uh and and i love that because i i think it's almost impossible in america now to end with a character steve carell's character making 200 million dollars and not have the crowd pumping their fist in the air (laughs) yeah Uh, but we all kind of feel empty and sort of like we were run over by a car at that point point.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, the movie um, sneaks up on you in that way. I mean, it, it kind of plays the same trick on the audience as it does for the characters, where you you're rooting for them, and then all of a sudden the, the the movie pulls back just a little bit more, and you're like, oh wait, I'm rooting for the American economy to fail. I'm, you know, it's just so th- my, these heroes of this movie can 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 win, basically. So I think it does a kind of neat thing for in a meta way for the audience too.
2: Yeah, Michael Lewis talked about that. he, he it's interesting to hear how he phrases the the collapse and the, and the fraud and sort of pride behind it, he, he always says that it's a matter of, like, the incentives just got all mixed up and that the incentives became things failing, and and that that was really the problem, where these banks were able to profit off of people losing millions or selling these toxic assets, uh, the CDOs specifically. And so that's kind of what you see at the end, is like the incentives were these guys really believed in a market economy, they really thought they were doing the right thing, making their investment, and then they realized the market economy had been so compromised and perverted that they had basically bet against themselves.
1: One of the ways you explain all of this this really complex stuff that we're talking about is these cameos from Selena Gomez and Margot Robbie and Anthony Bourdain and people have talked about kind of the the function they serve in the movie but I'm curious about how you chose those three specific people why them? <laughs>
2: It's a pretty strange threesome. You know, part of what we wanted to do, if I really had to actually point to a center of this movie, it's very easy to talk about all the economic cause and effect and everything, but really the center of the movie to me is why did these guys see it When no one else did. And the question is, like, what are we looking at in our culture? What are we paying attention to? So we came up with the idea of, like, having sort of our pop culture represented in the movie. Like, Mm -hmm. we do shots of, like, iPhones being sold, and there's, like, a ludicrous video, and uh, you see little snippets of things where, kind of, America's mind was at. And out of that came the idea of what would happen if pop culture actually told you things you needed to hear? So that's kind of where it came from. So we, we picked these people like Selena Gomez, you know, a pop star, and then suddenly she's telling us about synthetic CDOs and how the contagion has spread to other countries. And then Anthony Bourdain, you know, does reality TV uh, and is a, a kind of the king of the foodies. But also from his book, Kitchen Confidential, he had done a thing about seafood stew, and I just thought it was the perfect metaphor for the CDO, so I contacted him. So
1: you wrote that before? Before you knew if he was on board thinking like it's got to be seafood stew it's got to be anthony bourdain
2: i did i know and it was like and then i heard he was like going to vietnam or something and <laughs> i was like oh no we have to get him and god bless our uh, ep kevin messick wrangled him for like half a day so uh yeah because it, it couldn't be anyone else it was you know sort of a little bit paraphrasing his book Um yeah I remember
1: that part of the book really well. It's a great metaphor.
2: Isn't it? I I don't know. what You know, it's funny. Everyone I talk to remembers that part of the book, the Seafood Sioux. Maybe it is like the perfect metaphor for capitalism.
3: (laughs) But, Adam, I wanted to ask you, you know, as the guy who directed Anchorman and Step Brothers, do you feel kind of also personally responsible for being part of this giant distraction that took everyone's eyes off the ball?
2: Well, I mean, you know, there's no question I've existed in in pop culture, you know, for my whole career. You know, I was at Saturday Night Live and helped found the Upright Citizens Brigade and then obviously made all these comedies. I mean, I think during that time you know, the comedies we were trying to make like they're silly and absurdist, but we were always trying to have a bit of a point of view behind them. I mean, you know, Anchorman sort of Mocking the ratings-driven news and Talladega Nights was sort of a exploring that weird swell we had where Bush had like a ninety percent approval rating, that kind of red-state America. <laughs> so, you know, we always, even though our movies are silly, we were always kind of putting a, a a point of view in there, and we hoped that there was like a satirical edge to the absurdity. Um, that having been said, are there many people that just quote the funny lines and only care about the funny lines? Of course. I mean, that's the tricky line you kind of play with there. Um, and, and I think that's part of the reason, too, that, you know, with this movie, I felt like maybe it was time to be a little bit more overt and uh, that maybe things are, are changing so fast in this country that the, the days of, like, slyly putting a message in the middle of your movie doesn't quite cover it anymore. But, uh, but you know, I mean, I still I love those comedies. I remember after Talladega Nights opened, Michael Moore called me and he said you just made the most subversive movie in the entire country and <laughs> wow. no one knows it Wow! <laughs> so I'm still proud of those movies but yeah I think the game changes America's changing I mean you know Donald Trump is on the precipice of maybe being president so <laughs> I think you know What you say has to change to kind of fit what's going on.
1: Did you also look at the way that uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, which I think is another really interesting movie about finance, it's also really critical. But there were people who came out of that being like, yeah, that guy's a hero. I want to be like Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, do you watch that happen? You're like, wow, you really have to hammer it home for people to think that, like you said, making $200 million can be a bad thing.
2: You know, it it is a great thing. I'm totally aware of that. And, you know, Michael Lewis talked about his first book, Liar's Poker, how there was a lot of people that went into finance because of it, even though it was a cautionary tale. Hmm. And the nice thing with our movie is I don't feel like that's going on. I've yet to kind of feel any of that. Like, I want to be like him. Um, (laughs) Mostly at the end of the movie, we're hearing a lot of people want to have conversations. A lot of people are angry. Some people are sad. Uh, And there's none of that like, oh, my God, I want to be like Dr. Dr. Michael Burry and never leave my office and listen to speed metal while I'm sick to my stomach.
1: <laughs> uh, can we ask you about something that's really not serious at all that has to do with this movie? Please. Uh, how about Ryan Gosling's wig? How'd that decision get made?
2: That is, uh, you know, the premise of the movie was always that you, you see Wall Streeters and they're always incredibly slick and have perfect suits and are always, you know, $700 haircuts. Well, these guys were kind of the fringe guys. You know, these are the guys who dress poorly. Uh, literally, Dr. Michael Burry gets his hair cut at Supercuts and Carell's guy had this weird coif, the real guy. We actually pulled that back. And so if you look at the photos of the real guy that Gosling's playing, he's not really doing an impression of. It. Them, but, trust me, the real hair is even a little bit more extreme. Uh, but, yeah, we wanted everyone to be just off. We didn't want them to be movie stars. We didn't want to worry about how handsome they were or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, because these are the guys who, who aren't those guys. You know, these are the guys who actually did their work and actually saw the numbers.
1: So even though Ryan Gosling is kind of the coolest guy in the movie, he's the suavest in the bunch, he's still not Ryan Gosling.
2: no. And and they even say it like would I buy a car from him, no way. <laughs> right. Like he still got this kind of abrasive, kind of slickness to him, that even though he's from a big bank, he, it's you know he's still an outsider. Uh, and yeah, so uh, Ryan actually wore contact lenses. If you look, his mm-hmm. eye color uh, eye color is different. Like he just that was sort of the idea for all of them. And then when Pitt showed up and he'd grown his hair out and had that beard, and uh, you know it was uh, that was sort of the 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 game was. You you know, how can we be the opposite of Gordon Gecko? How can we be the opposite of Charlie Sheen in Wall Street or Margin Call?
3: Did the actors spend a lot of time with the guys that they played in the film?
2: Bale actually went up and spent an entire long day with Dr. Burry. Um, I think they I think they literally sat in a room for twelve straight hours and just talked.
3: Listening wow. to speed metal. <laughs> and,
2: and listen to speed metal, definitely. <laughs> and uh, and then Carell spent some time with his guy. I mean, he's Mark Baum in the movie, but the real guy's Steve Eisman too, and then I would say Jeremy Strong are really doing kind of freakish, freakishly good, I don't want to call them impressions, because they, they definitely interpret them but um, it's actually unbelievable how they played those characters and especially when you meet the real people Pitt is actually a little bit different than the real guy the real guy doesn't look as strange as he is when you first meet him but then you start talking to him and he's definitely like an end times prepper And so Pitt had this whole kind of concept for his guy I think he looks like Ken Burns actually
0: yeah, yeah and, hair. Uh,
2: so yeah I, I, I kind of wanted to make sure the actors were comfortable but my default setting was when in doubt go with the specifics of the real person person, because nothing beats the truth
0: and the specifics so that was kind of the rule of the day so you're dealing with these you know incredibly good performances uh, that have you know the movie has all this awards buzz now and and, you know we talk a lot about the Oscars on this podcast and there tends to be a sort of false binary of it's a serious Oscar film or it's not it's a comedy or it's a drama you're making something of a shift here is that something that you were conscious of when you were putting the film together and shooting it or was was it the same experience um, just with a different script I guess
2: yeah, it was different. There's no question. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we do our comedies, they're, you know, they're not just smile comedies. Like, we want audiences to laugh hard. So. Yeah all day long on set, I always describe, like, my mind's a little bit like a, a, a Gatling gun. Like, you're just constantly thinking of alts and jokes and push and push. And, you know, you're trying to get the look right, you're tracking the story, but then you're just always pushing for laughs. And I kept joking during this movie that it was very European. It was very relaxed. <laughs> and we could be very nuanced. And, you know, Barry Ackroyd would do a shot and I'd go, what if you try this? Just move it over here a little bit. And Bale would do a take. And I'd be like, that's interesting. But what if you try tried this, so it was all we really got to get into like the the you know, the folds and the cracks of everything that was going on. And uh, by the way, that's not to say we didn't improvise because we definitely did. I used improv in this for sure, but just not the way I would use it in a comedy. I used it more to kind of flesh out mistakes and, and to get them talking over each other and and to get kind of strange snippets of conversation. So I, I would let them go for like maybe a minute before the actual cue line that began the scene. And then sometimes I would not call cut to like 40 seconds after. And Ryan Gosling was really... Down with the improv. He was very excited about it, so he has a lot of improvised moments in the movie. And uh, Pitt was into it as well. He's got some great improvised moments. So it was more of a spice. Whereas when we do the comedies, it's definitely more of a you know a protein. <laughs> was uh,
1: was Ryan Gosling imp- that mo- scene he has in the bathroom where he's throwing everybody out to stay on the phone? I think that's been released online. Is that is that one of the improv scenes? Because he's really funny in that.
2: He's really funny. Uh, it's like half improv, half written. I mean, I had him throwing some guys out of the bathroom, but. He then just took it and ran with it, like repeating the name like twice. And then my favorite is, I'm jacked. I'm jacked to the tits. He totally improvised that. (laughs) I did not see that coming.
3: (laughs) But did did you have a hard time convincing, you know, the, the, the people with the money that you were the guy to tell this story?
2: I think the key sort of moment was really uh, Brad Pitt's company, Plan B, when I met with them. And I I was very lucky because they knew my stuff. They knew uh, other things I'd done, like stuff I'd written for... Huffington imposed or strange projects I'd done on the side that were about politics uh Jeremy kleiner over there had just been kind of following what I'd been up to so they were really the key once they kind of said yes we think this is the guy Paramount I've worked with them a lot so they were op- certainly open to me writing the script so uh, when the script came in and they actually liked it uh that's when the momentum started happening they're like oh wow i think their big hang up with it was and and understandably so was just like well who are the heroes Mm-hmm. And I just mm-hmm. never viewed that as a problem. I always thought that's what was cool about it. So I kind of embraced it a little bit more. Once Christian Bale and Ryan Gosling and Carell and all those guys, and then Pitt wanted to do it, that that was really <laughs> it. And they were like, okay, they were like, we're yeah, we will movie. make
3: this movie. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. not going to be a problem.
1: When the trailer for this came out earlier this fall, I think it came to a lot of people as a surprise. It was like, oh yeah, this movie is coming out right now. And then it keeps coming up. You know, it's coming up in all these awards, and people keep being like, oh, it's that kind of funny movie from the guy made Step Brothers. It's got kind of this sneak attack quality to it. But I wonder, with the way that the trailer released, I wonder if that was part of the strategy to kind of come out here with this really thoughtful movie but kind of surprise people at every turn.
2: You know, it, it honestly happened just simply because the movie took shape faster than I thought it would. We, You know, I have this brilliant editor, Hank Corwin, and usually when you see your first editor's assembly, it's it's usually a mess. I mean, it's supposed to be. And his first assembly was so good. I was like, oh my God. And then so he and I worked for like three weeks together. And then I said, you know, I think we should put this up in front of a crowd. This feels really good. And it was about a half an hour longer than the movie ended up being. But it was so promising that first screening that I went to the studio. I said, hey, I think this is going to be ready sooner rather than later. And you never know with this economy, the way it's going. And it just feels like with the presidential election, like this is a while the iron's hot kind of movie. Mm. And they said, well, let us see it. So I did this big screening for the studio, and everyone was telling me, you're crazy, like you don't screen this early. And thank God they all walked out and were like, you're right. It's there. Um, So then we just jumped on the horse at that point. But it was, uh, yeah, it was one of those rare cases where we kind of knew what we were doing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's got to be some satisfaction in that too. Everyone being like, you can't make a movie about the financial crisis. You can't release it this fast. And you're like, watch me. And then it's been working out.
2: It's been cool. I mean, the most satisfying thing is like we did a Q and A last night and. It's just the Q&A was so fiery. It was really cool, like, in a, in a great way. Like, people weren't just raising their hands. They were, like, standing up out of their seats with their hands, like, bolt upright. <laughs> and, like, one guy was yelling, "I please, I'd like to ask my question. And uh, and there was a guy who was like, I was at Morgan Stanley when this happened, and you nailed it. And then another guy was like, I don't, I don't agree. It should have been Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae should have been pointed out more. It was crazy, and people were, like, applauding answers and getting into arguments and... Uh, that was the coolest moment, because now the movie's starting to get, you know, it's going to go wide, obviously, on Wednesday, but now enough people have started to see it in the in the markets it's in that it's starting to generate this conversation that is exactly why we made the movie.
3: And just one last thing I wanted to say, you know, it's it's like watching, there's so many great actors from Tom Hanks to right on down the line who started out as, as comedy actors, uh, and they have the... The technical chops down and they can do so much once that's kind of second nature and it's really fun watching this movie with you as the kind of director version of that and, and there's you know there's just not a dull moment in the movie it's really cool so congratulations and thanks for coming on
2: uh thank you so much i appreciate it
0: shane shane well Nobody's buying CDO or mortgage bonds
4: anymore, and everybody wants swaps. Swaps are now the most popular product on the street. That's good for us.
0: Yes and no. I heard from somebody who heard from somebody. No, Alex. No. Sorry. Benny Klieger over. Morgan
2: is taking on some heavy losses in the bond department. might be time to get a life jacket and get out.
0: I mean, seriously, I feel like I'm financially inside of you or something.
4: Okay. Uh, I'm jacked. I'm jacked to the test! Good. Do you feel it? No.
1: And now we'd like to welcome back our first ever repeat guest who is Vanity Fair's executive (laughs) West Coast editor Krista Smith. Hi Krista. Hi guys! I love being a repeat guest. Yeah, you love having a
3: repeat guest. You're the only
1: the only person we would think to invite back twice this quickly. Um, We wanted you back on here first of all because it's great to have you in conversation, but second of all, you I think out of all of us are the biggest Quentin Tarantino fan, and you saw Mm -hmm. Hateful Eight before any of us as well, and came back raving about it. And, you know, we kind of expected that because you love Quentin Tarantino, but you've had such a strong opinion about this movie. It's coming out finally on Christmas. It's got this whole 70 millimeter roadshow thing going on. Mm -hmm. It's it's a big deal. Um, So I think we wanted to start this conversation just about Hateful Eight in general. What captivated you so much about this movie? Why are you such a big fan? (laughs)
4: Well, like you said, I am a fan of tarantino 's from from the get go and what I love about what you can expect in the Quentin Tarantino movie is the insane dialogue, the build up, the tension, the unexpected red herrings that come out of nowhere. the violence, but the violence for me isn 't the violence like I, thought, I think Game of Thrones is more violent mm-hmm. okay, and that 's on TV so he has a kind of cinematic violence. Uh, that I really appreciate and actually love watching. So uh, I was really looking forward to this and also it's my genre. There's no kind of western I don't love. I can sit through any of them, even (laughs) those bad ones they made in the late 60s. Uh, So I love that period of time right after the Civil War when all hell was breaking loose in America and the Wild West was really the wild, wild west and this kind of window into what it would look like in Quentin Tarantino's eyes. To me, it's like a masterclass in screenwriting and a masterclass in race relations. And I I just thought it was beautiful. And I love also with Quentin, you know, he brings these people. You're like, Kurt Russell! Finally! Oh my (laughs) God! We get to see Kurt Russell! It's so great! Jennifer Jason Leigh! Like, he just... I don't want to say resurrects careers, because that's way too grand a statement. But he sees things in actors that... That as film lovers as all of us are on this podcast are film lovers. We recognize, but so often they are not exploited in the best way.
3: Yeah, we've seen him with do that with everybody. Yeah, mm-hmm. Sam Jackson, John Travolta, Pam Greer. Remember that was, yes, was a, a, a moment. Uh mm-hmm. What do you? Th- what was your thought of Kurt Russell before this movie? I mean, what did you remember him for? Thank Snake Liskin. Liskin? <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, Kurt Russell, Overboard. Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, uh, I remember the Disney movies uh, as a kid, but no, Kurt Russell for me really was, okay, really, you guys are going to make fun of me for this, but Tequila Sunrise, I mean, come on, uh-huh. yeah. right now with Mel Gibson and Michelle Pfeiffer, well, I love that it's movie. It's funny
3: that he and Jen- Jennifer Jason Leigh, who was on the show last week, are, are basically handcuffed together for you know two-thirds of the movie, <laughs> mm-hmm. the two mm-hmm. sort of discoveries, if you can call it that. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, and
1: I, also, I actually think Walton Goggins is a really interesting move he's made in this, and people love him from just... Justified. And as someone who didn't watch Justified, I'd seen him pop up in movies and been like, oh, I don't get what people like about him. And then in this, he's so good and so charismatic that that was another thing where he finally gave that actor the role that would really let him stand out.
4: Right, and imagine being Walton Goggins, and you're doing most of your stuff with Sam Jackson and Bruce Dern. I mean, he really, he really popped for me as well. I would agree, Katie. I thought he was great. And I don't watch uh, any of the other shows. So I was like, who is that actor? I played that game the whole time in my head mm-hmm. uh, for most of the movie. I thought he was terrific.
3: So I have one question, which is, did you see this before or after The Revenant?
4: I saw this before, uh, I went to the first screen at the DGA, so I saw it with, uh, how they're doing that, uh, the tour. That's the way I saw it. There was an overture, the there was an version. intermission, mm-hmm. it was a beautiful theater, uh, for, at the Directors Guild, uh, and then there was a Q&A with Quentin afterwards, and then I went to see the Revenant. I think was a couple of weeks later.
3: Because I think one of the weird things for me was I had just, and, and I think all three of us might have been in this boat where mm-hmm. we had just seen the Revenant, which is a visually inventive in a completely different way Western, and so it was a lot of Western. It was six hours of Western within like you know four <laughs> days or something, and I think that that the kind of stateliness uh, that was probably necessary with shooting in seventy millimeter was such a contrast to the revenant where you were kind of like inside everybody's eyeballs half the time. It was it was such a contrast that I think it made the first half of this kind of drag a little bit for me. but you're saying you really saw suspense in that, that, that you were kind of you knew the good stuff was coming and that you savored the kind of buildup.
4: I did, because it, there's no question that it's long. I mean, you're in that stagecoach, you're. but I love this old-fashioned idea of, we're, are we going to beat the storm? Just when you see those dangles on that guy's hat, you know, the <laughs> stagecoach driver, those little balls, you're like, what is that coming over the horizon? You know, if this isn't your first Quentin Tarantino movie, you know something's coming. Yeah. And the way they just kept stopping, and one more person on the stagecoach, and just those dead bodies, just all of it, Yes. Yeah. I felt the suspense all the way through.
3: Yeah, the joke afterwards that we had was, it was like, "Take your revolver and put it on that stump. No, not that stump. That stump." <laughs> and it's like you just follow. There's no cuts. You just watch yeah. the guy like walking around Real the stove, trying to figure out where to throw his revolver. Um, but yeah, he 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 milked it. He he milked the suspense, and and I think you either you're in or you're not.
0: I guess. I, I think it's interesting that you know I know that they did a reading of this movie. Um, like a stage reading of it before they filmed it and then they're going to maybe turn it into a play now or Quentin Tarantino wants to turn it into a play and it has that quality more than any of his scripts. It's mostly just in a room and very talky and I think that that's kind of interesting and I think that maybe I would have liked that if it had been a little bit more condensed but, but you know, he wanted to get these 70 millimeter vistas in there and this kind of long lead-up and I think, Chris, it's interesting that you said the thing about the Western, the loving Westerns because I think this is kind of where tarantino's uh like love of genre kind of lost me because this is kind of not one that i'm that into you know Mm -hmm. like i can go Mm -hmm. along with inglorious bastards because i like you know world war ii movies or whatever but but this i think for a three-hour homage to a very sort of particular set of westerns like it lost me because i was just like i don't know what he's referring to really you know i just didn't (laughs) kind of get it but yeah i mean i think i think that you're 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 right Krista, that you do have to kind of respect that build
4: well, also, when you get to the haberdashery, you're suddenly, which, which I also kind of liked, is you're not, then it becomes this, you know, Ten Little Indians, one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you guys know that one, yeah. but that, it, you know, basically it was like, who did it? And people keep d- dying, so it can't be that person, this person, whatever. <laughs> then it becomes this kind of great uh, mystery and almost like an Agatha Christie, who done it, which I found really fun and enjoyable, and also having all those actors in that room and the way he uh, shoots it when you go back in time and all of that. And the thing about Quentin, and I understand why you would think it's long, because it is long, okay? Three hours, no three hours. But I love the way he's in a certain way, he's so economic with his script. Even though it is long, every single thing pays off. The red jelly bean you see in the floorboards. The yeah. the Lincoln letter at the very top of the movie when he first gets in the in the stagecoach. It all of that stuff is worked, it's like a Rubik's Cube that all is then unfolded through the course of the film and I just love that experience
1: the agatha christie part you're talking about that's really rare where I kind of came around to this movie which all happens basically after the intermission if you see the 70 millimeter roadshow version there's a big long intermission like you said there's an overture and I kind of got to intermission and I was like okay where are we going this, with this it like ends on a cliffhanger but it does feel so long and talky but when it does get to the who it and it has kind of a shape to it then I really felt like all those performances were paying off to me but the I had the impatience that I think you're seeing in a lot of people in the first half of it to then get to the second half and be like, oh, okay, I see where we've been going this whole time. But maybe that says something about me and modern moviegoers that we don't, we don't we can't stick with things to be patient with them.
0: Well, I think also we had just seen The Revenant, and I, I sort of made a joke on Twitter that I'm kind of hoping someone does a double feature of these two movies just to see if they go insane because because <laughs> it's well, a you, ba- have, yeah. you
4: have to do them in order because The Revenant it is actually more like 1820, it's like yeah. An 1823, right. yeah, and this one is a you know after the Civil War, obviously, which is in 1865, so. There is like like fifty years of difference,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, so do watch Leo suffer through it first, and then, right. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he could
4: do that. I don't know. Uh, I just thought, listen, if Jennifer Jason Leigh would be great for her if she gets a nomination, I would love to see Sam Jackson get a nomination. I thought he was terrific, uh, although I don't think that the the cards are leaning that way for this film, but uh, he was great. I just thought he was terrific. Yeah, and I
1: can't figure out, because Best Actor this year is not as competitive as it usually is. I can't really figure out why Sam Jackson can't get that momentum going. Jennifer Jason Leigh has shown up in awards, and she definitely deserves to. But Sam Jackson, he's been working forever. He's worked with everybody. It really feels like he should be able to get that same momentum
4: and he's so good no one can say uh tarantino dialogue like sam jackson and apparently he's the only person that can actually change some of the dialogue oh, uh, wow. from what i heard at least that's what sam jackson told me they kind of work <laughs> a little bit like i know what you're trying to say and what about if i do it this way so i don't know maybe that's true maybe that's not true but i do think that that kind of uh director uh muse situation is is just beautifully executed with those two
0: something that put me off a little uh, well maybe more than a little about the movie was was the i know it was true to the time i guess but the use of the n-word so profusely um do you think that there's any sort of chance that that could scuttle its chances or or do you think people are going to understand the movie in its kind of context and you know historically
4: well, I think from, you know, what Quentin's done before, you know, no one, no one really takes pause, really. I mean, True. think about his, what he did with um, Django Unchained.
3: I don't know, though. It, it did feel a little different than Django. I loved Django, and this one, it was bothering me in a, in a different way. And this one, it reminded me more like when Quentin shows up in Pulp Fiction, right, where he's spouting the uh, N-word yeah. himself. Mm-hmm. Right.
4: But you know what's on my mind right now? It ain't the coffee in my kitchen. It's the dead nigger in my garage.
0: Oh, Jimmy, don't even worry Well, no, 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 look no, 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 no,
4: no, mis- me. Don't think about anything. I'm gonna ask you a question. When you came pulling in here, did you notice a sign on the front of my house that said dead nigger storage? Jimmy, you know I ain't seen no shit. Did you notice a sign in the front of my house that said dead nigger storage? No,
3: I didn't. You know why you didn't see that sign? Why? Cause it ain't there, cause storing dead niggers ain't my fucking business. That's why. And that caused some problems. It was it was not great at the time. Um and you know, I you sort of like I guess it's great that he says, Come on, this is a word, we're not gonna let it like I'm not we we can't turn it into something that it's not. But on the other hand, I don't know why in twenty fifteen in a western that was not centrally about race race relations the same way that Django was. I mean Django it was like It was off-putting, but the whole movie was about... Slave yeah, I agree with you on
4: this. I think this whole movie is about race relations and I think it's about where you stand uh, economically on the on the food chain, e- where you stand uh, racially. I think it's all about
3: that. Really? Cuz to me yeah. it just felt kind of like a Reservoir dog sort of like fun puzzle movie um with a nice setting, m- more than like deep themes running through it.
0: I mean, I could see you you being Chris. I don't you know, we don't want to spoil the movie for people, but the way the movie ends there is maybe some sort of symbolism there. I just wasn't sure if ten minutes at the end justifies, you know, two hours plus before it of, of N word this, N word that, you know, every other word. And I think in the context of someone like Jennifer Jason Lee who plays the villain here and is supposed to be kind of a deplorable person, like Leonardo DiCaprio and Django, it sort of makes sense. But then when you have your sort of more heroic characters also I don't know, but I'll be curious to see what What more people say about it as the movie comes out, you know,
1: it'd be interesting to do twenty fifteen and the N word. It'd basically be this and Straight Outta Compton, which are incredibly different (laughs) films when it comes to race. Yeah, no, yeah,
3: Yeah. Uh right. Uh But yeah, because that Straight Outta Compton, a because of it's being said by african-american characters but also the whole point of straight Outta compton in a way is like a giant fuck you to the white man yeah. right and which is what should... the point of Django was this one i felt was not quite that
4: i also think one of the things that's worth noting about quentin is he uses women in such an interesting way jennifer jason lee here is pretty much the head of the gang like i love that i love that a woman is the one that's in charge
0: yeah and i think that also you know people should be patient for the jennifer jason lee payoff i, I was mm-hmm, kind of i was mm-hmm. watching. And I was like, well, people are giving her Oscar buzz. Where? Where? I don't really see it yet. But then, sure enough, <laughs> towards the end, she gets there. and it, yeah. Her, her, do her regular
3: role. people do this horrible thing that we do, which is like <laughs> 30 minutes into the movie, we're like, oh, they're getting an Oscar for sure. Where's that
1: Oscar scene? I
3: hope not. Hopefully normal people don't <laughs> Absolutely do
4: Absolutely not. I, mean, I, can, I can pretty
3: much guarantee <laughs> that, that, that no
4: one does that, but uh, we all do. But it's Star Wars world, and we just live in it. So does
3: anything matter anymore? <laughs> exactly. I yeah. know.
4: Um, well, I have to say, I was at that Star Wars premiere, and never in my lifetime have I ever been to a premiere like that. And I don't think they've ever had one like that in, in Hollywood's history.
1: That must have been so fun.
4: It was incredible, to, and and just to see Spielberg and uh, Lucas, and they were sitting next to each other. And when Bob Iger came out to you know introduce the film and kind of explain a little bit of the journey, and he was like, "We none of us would be here without George Lucas," and they you know spotlighted him, and 2,500 plus people all stood up and just would not
0: stop applying it was so emotional you oh, must have felt good that's that's nice yeah to hear. and then spielberg
4: yeah. hugged him you're like oh my god Jaws! Oh <laughs> the whole world in my mind everything
0: kind of like flooded
4: all together to that moment it's kind of amazing
1: well the hateful eight is in some theaters beginning december 25th and then i believe everywhere on january 1st if you can see it with an intermission the uh it's kind of a fun experience but otherwise there's a uh, slightly shorter version out there for everyone and um Krista, thank you so much for joining us once again Always fun you guys. Happy holidays.
3: Probably have to bust my friend if I'm going to do my job. And I hate that.
2: You're a bad boy, Nick. You're a very bad boy. I didn't mean to hurt you. Just looking at you hurts more. You are in the wrong place at the wrong time. You lied to me. You wouldn't shoot me over money. Oh, it's a lot of money going to be Nick, Mel Gibson, Michelle Pfeiffer, Kurt Russell, Tequila Sunrise.
1: And finally, it's time to go big before we go home and take another look at the tricky category this year of best actor. Uh, Mike, you feel very confident about who you think is going to win it all.
3: Leo. It's Leo. <laughs> Leo DiCaprio. Did anyone see The Revenant? I guess. Uh, I don't know if you did. <laughs> he but sleeps the, in a
1: horse carcass. He sleeps
3: in a horse carcass. He swims in water that is definitely cold. There's no special effects <laughs> way to undo that. Um, he, uh, cries multiple times. He cries with his face sideways and a tear rolls over the bridge of his nose. I can't stop talking about it. Um, and it's just, I don't know that that's what America wants. You know, I don't know if the Academy <laughs> that's what the wants, internet it. wants it. It's the internet definitely wants it. And I think it's time for the Academy just to just accept it. That yeah. this is a 40 year old man who likes to date models, but is one of our great actors. And you know, hit this one out of the park, in my humble opinion.
1: What's been interesting is we've been predicting Leo for months, and I think I agree with you now that he's going to win. Um, But the love for The Revenant doesn't really seem to be there. Like, some people thought it was going to be an automatic best picture contender. Like, now a lot of people see it as an also-ran. But Leo is the one thing that everyone is still standing by. So it might be one of those things where he is the only win for this very large, elaborate movie. And he's the one thing everyone can rally behind, which is not how I expected this to go, but might actually help his chances. I
0: don't know. I'm thinking back to whatever year Uh, Adrian Brody won for The Pianist. 2003, yeah. 2003. You know, he was up against uh, Daniel Day-Lewis in Gangs of New York and uh, Jack Nicholson in About Schmidt. I mean, Mm -hmm. two very big performances and very... Well, I guess the Yankees of New York was sort of half liked. But Brody kind of came out of nowhere and kind of because these other guys were splitting the vote and, and, and kinda snuck in. I don't know. I think there could be a spoiler this year. I don't know if it's Brian Cranston for Trumbo. I don't know if it's Will Smith for concussion. I think that's probably not gonna happen, but that could break late and but I, I don't know. I think also the big short, I think that if, if Carell can get in there in the lead category versus supporting mm. that could that could be a spoiler. Um yeah, I I just I don't think that, that Leo should should clear the space on his mantle yet.
1: The only <laughs> the only nitpick I have with your theory which I think is very solid. I'm always waiting for an Adrian Brody surprise. Is that both Jack Nicholson and Daniel Day Lewis already had Oscars? That's true. And so yes. the narrative of someone being overdue. In this case, Leonardo right. DiCaprio and Matt right. Damon. Who's this competition? Doesn't don't neither of them have one. So
0: oh right, Matt Damon. We can't forget him. So. I know. He yeah.
1: Well, yeah. The Martian's an odd duck, but uh, yeah, it's a, it ma- it makes it an interesting category. I think
3: the problem for the the only danger for Leo is if it looks like he's not sincere. Uh, you know, he's been doing a lot of work, to. It, I don't think promotion comes easy to this guy, you know, and I don't know exactly why. I think it, uh, he, he seems to be a little uncomfortable with it. And he's gone out and done the kind of, like, I slept inside of a horse carcass, horse carcass and I actually ate the raw bison liver and all that stuff. I think he may want to just cool it with that yeah, for a got little while. Yeah, the holidays while. coming up. To, yeah.
1: uh, hey, everybody's going to take a break. Yeah,
3: it starts to feel a little bit, like, contrived. But I think... I, I would almost be dusting the mantle for this Mm -hmm. one. I think it would be like a pretty shocking thing if he didn't get this.
0: If he wins, we'll have to start a new narrative and who's who's next, you know, who's who's deserving. Matt Damon. Susan
3: Lucci of uh, 40-year-old A-list actors. Glenn Close just
0: perked up somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget about me. I'll start
1: that campaign. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. And you can find all of us writing about award season and much more at VanityFair.com. And you can follow all of us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And Mike?
3: Uh, Mike underscore Hogan.
1: And Richard?
0: Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S.
1: And all of us are at Little Gold Men. This episode was produced by Sam Dingman. And thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply.